Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can join us in person or catch our online gatherings by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church. We would love to hear from you. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 32 of our series, Long Story Short. Now last week we began discussing one of the more well-known characters of the Bible, but also one of the most difficult books of the Bible, both by the same name, Job. And we dispelled some false assumptions, and then we spent some uh, most of our time in chapters 1 and 2 in the narrative prologue. And we concluded our lesson last week with the idea that the wisdom from Job does not ease our suffering, but it does help us to avoid foolish thinking that might lead us to reject God when we actually need Him most. And so today we have to tackle the last 40 chapters. Easy, right? But before we leave the book of Job and finish it up, we need to expand on the purpose of the book to talk about some of the theological foundations of the book. Now, last week, we introduced the idea of the retribution principle, which is basically the idea that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. This is the belief that people get what they deserve. So then righteous or faithful or good people will prosper. And that could be good health, success, their crops grow, they have happy marriages, good families, big houses, whatever it might look like. And on the flip side, the wicked, those who are not faithful, not righteous, not upright, they will suffer, whether that's disaster, disease, death, or bad stuff. So it's just a way to talk about this idea that people get what they deserve. The righteous prosper, the wicked suffer. We call it the retribution principle. Now, I think it's pretty common for people to hold to this principle if they tend to believe that their circumstances in life somehow reflect whether they are in favor or out of favor with God or the gods, and that they've done something that has brought upon the circumstances that they're living through. Again, whether it's evil or good, that they are in favor or out of favor reflects itself in their circumstances. Now, this was recognized in the ancient Near Eastern world. People thought that way. And likewise, it's very common for people to think that way today, that their circumstances reflect being in favor or out of favor with God. We even casually say when something goes well, oh, I must have done something right. Or maybe if something goes wrong, they say, you know, what did I do to deserve this? So it's this retribution principle, which is at the foundation of the book of Job. In fact, the book of Job is putting this principle under the microscope because Job and his friends all believe very firmly in the retribution principle and the way they apply the principle to their lives. Not only do they assume that if someone is righteous, they will prosper, and if someone is wicked, they will suffer. They also turn that around. If someone is suffering, they must be wicked. And if someone is prospering, they must have done something right. And so when Job's circumstances turn so dramatically, so tragically, we know that the conclusion everyone is going to draw, they'll decide he must have done something really really bad to bring about this kind of disaster, to go from the highest high to the lowest lows. So the book of Job is looking at this retribution principle thing. And after all, remember the challenger's question, does Job fear God for nothing? 
So how does the retribution principle play into all of this? Well, in this principle, there's an attempt to understand what God is doing in the world, to articulate it, to justify it, to systemize the logic of how God is at work in the world, that God is working a justice system. You do good, you get good. You do bad things, you get bad things. So the retribution principle assumes an understanding of how God works in the world. It's an attempt to sort out or quantify or systemize this idea. Now, the challenger's claim is that this principle, bringing benefits, prosperity to righteous pe- people, is actually actually detrimental to the development of true righteousness because it sets up this ulterior motive, the anticipation of gain, doing it for what you can get out of it. So the challenger is focusing attention on the retribution principle as whether that truly is a good part of God's policies. But Job comes at it from the other direction, and he claims, listen, if this principle is not enforced, if righteous people suffer, well, then God's justice becomes suspect. So you can see that these are the two sides of the accusation, and the retribution principle is central to the conversation. Now, we might understand this a little bit better if you can picture it as a triangle. This will represent the different claims that each character is using. At one lower corner of the triangle, you have the retribution principle. At the other lower corner of the triangle, you have Job's righteousness. And at the top of the triangle, the third corner, you have God's justice. Now, as long as Job is prospering, this triangle holds together very conveniently, very comfortably, no problems. God is doing justice, Job is being righteous, and the retribution principle is true. Everything's happy. But when Job begins suffering, we look at the triangle and something's got to go. You can't hold on to all three corners, to God doing justice, to Job being righteous, and to the retribution principle being true. You can't hold on to all three. Something's got to give. And as the book unfolds, we discover who is going to give up on which corner. We'll start with Job's friends. Job's friends choose the retribution principle corner of the triangle. They pitch their tent there over and over and over again in their speeches. They affirm the retribution principle. They apply it to the situation. They use it as part of their argument. They are the champions of this principle. So there they stand. They're going to defend their corner. Now, from their corner, from their vantage point, they look out at the other two corners of the triangle and they ask, well, which one's got to go? Are they really going to say, well, God really isn't working out justly? Or are they going to say, Job really isn't righteous? Well, we know where they go. They're happy to affirm that God is working justly. And so, with the retribution principle true and God not being under scrutiny, of course, the problem is Job. He must not be as righteous as he seems to us, not as righteous as he seemed to everyone on the outside, and certainly not as righteous as he seems to think he is. The problem is Job. So they take their stand in the retribution principle corner, and they give up on Job's corner. That's the one that's got to go. Now, when we think about Job, And his perspective, of course, it's very different. It's very clear where he stands. He pitches his tent in his own corner. His righteousness is unassailable in his mind. But of course, that creates a little bit of an awkwardness because now he's got to look out and ask, which other corner are you going to give up? Is he going to give up the retribution principle? Or is he going to give up on the idea that God acts justly? 
It's a conundrum for poor Job. But what we find over and over again is that he affirms the retribution principle. He tries to find a weakness in it, but he really can't. And so he turns his eyes towards God. And as Job's speeches continue through the book, it becomes more and more accusing of God. It becomes more and more doubtful, skeptical that God and and his justice are true. So Job stands in his own corner and he's giving up God's corner as he holds on to the retribution principle. Now, besides the three friends that come in through the dialogue section in chapters 3 through 27, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, we have a fourth character, Elihu. Now, he doesn't come in until the second discourse toward the end of the book in chapter 32. But Elihu is still engaged with the triangle. Elihu pitches his tent at the top of the triangle with God's justice. Now, at that point, you say, okay, what's Elihu going to give up? Is he going to give up the retribution principle? Or, like Job's other friends, is he going to question Job's righteousness? Now, some people have read the book and thought that Elihu really isn't much different than the other friends. But Elihu positions himself differently on the triangle, and he comes to conclusions that the friends weren't even close to because he cheats or he's clever. What he does is he looks at the retribution principle and he says, okay, this principle is true, but I think we've got it wrong. We have to reevaluate it and expand it. See, most people thought of the retribution principle as you've done bad things in the past, So now bad things are happening to you. So your circumstances are a response to past behavior. Elihu comes along and says, maybe it's more complex than that. That the way of looking at the retribution principle makes it remedial, fixing, addressing, responding to what's gone wrong in the past. But what if we think of this principle as more preventative or a way to develop you? Here's how it would look. It's not so much something you did in the past that's causing negative consequences. It's something that you are just ready to get involved in or you're on the brink of this kind of behavior, this this decision that it's supposed to kind of turn you away from it. And so the retribution principle could be a response to present developing things instead of things just in the past. Now what that does It means that unlike the friends, he doesn't have to find unrighteousness in Job's past. Instead, now he looks at Job differently. And he says, so here's the problem, Job. You want to know the reason for your suffering? Look at your self-righteousness, your willingness to vindicate yourself, justify yourself at the expense of God. He says the problem is not what you did before your suffering began. The problem has become evident in how you have responded once the suffering started. The problem then, Job, is evident in your self-righteous behavior. Now that's why I say he cheated. He redefined the terms. And in redefining them, it gave him an alternative that the other friends never thought of. And even Job himself is less in a position to defend himself on. Even as he continues to affirm his righteousness, his self-righteousness becomes very evident and his willingness to accuse God. So Elihu has pitched his tent on God acting justly. And in the process, he's held on to the retribution principle, though he's redefined it. And that has given him a different sort of attack against Job's righteousness. Elihu is more right than any of the other human characters in the book. Like He is closest. He transcends what the friends think, and he really sees into Job more realistically and more appropriately. The problem, though, with Elihu is that even though he's closer to the truth than anyone else, He's got his own problems. And in the end, he's still making the retribution principle the 
basis for understanding how things work. He just redefines it. And so we've got our triangle, the triangle of claims, how different parties kind of pick up different positions and how to view the scenario of the book from those different positions. Now, as we try to resolve some of these tensions, we can ask, how have people tried to resolve the tension of the retribution principle? After all, most people at some time or another come to experience life in such a way that the retribution principle looks suspect to them. So how are those tensions re resolved? One way is to regarding the nature of God. Now, this is certainly what they did in the ancient Near East. They had no confidence that God was acting justly. They believed the retribution principle, but they really didn't have a triangle tightly pieced together. They just compromised on the nature of God. Other times, People might compromise or qualify regarding the purpose of suffering. Some people talk about suffering as educational, character building, maybe even to talk about their participation with Christ in his sufferings. And so they end up qualifying the purpose of suffering. Now that sort of resolves some tensions in the retribution principle. In the biblical text, people will try to resolve the tension, like the psalmist, for instance, resolve the tension by thinking about timing. The psalmist says in the Lament Psalms, where most of the time they are lamenting the context of the retribution principle, that their enemies are triumphing over them. So why is that happening? The enemy is the bad guy. I'm the good guy. Why is this happening? And so that question about the retribution principle is the underlying point of many of the Lament Psalms. And lots of times a psalm is treated in terms of timing. Eventually, things are going to smooth out. You know, God will act in his appropriate time, act against the enemy and restore the psalmist. So at times, of course, in Christian theology, that goes even further, that maybe things are bad now, but we've got eternity. We've got eternity with God, eternity in heaven, and so things will be fine. So on the scale of eternity, the small things we suffer now are minor. So some people try to qualify the retribution principle with the extended time concept. Now some people, uh, they go at the retribution principle in regard to the role of justice in the world. You can talk about the world not being just, even if you still talk about God acting justly. That that is, in this world, non-order continues. We view the idea that justice is not the sole foundation of how God works in the world, and that doesn't compromise him. But the question is, has he made the world to conform to his own justice? And we know that he hasn't, because we're sinful people, and yet we still exist. If the world fully conformed to God's justice, it wouldn't be a world that we could live in. And so given a fallen world, perfect justice is not attainable. The basis for God's operation in the world is his entire character, his entire range of attributes, not just one attribute or another. You can't just say God is love and think that covers everything. It doesn't. He's lots of other things too. So one way to qualify the retribution principle without somehow being detrimental to the character of God has to understand that God and his world are different and that he has not imposed his justice on it. God, in his wisdom, is concerned with justice, but that's all given in the parameters of an imperfect world, a fallen world, and even not a world that's fully ordered yet. God has brought order into a world of non-order and disorder. Sin has also come to the picture, but we're not living in a perfectly ordered world, and therefore it's not one that reflects God's attributes throughout. 
Yes, there are affirmations that we find of the retribution principle. And we find them in Psalms, especially wisdom Psalms. We find them in Proverbs. These affirmations, though, are not intended to be a full theological description of how the world works according to God's attributes and His doing justice. They are Proverbs. They're proverbial in nature. The retribution principle needs to be understood by us as proverbial in nature. That means it's how things often act, but not how things always work. It's not a guarantee. It's not a promise. The retribution principle does not function well to offer an explanation of suffering and evil in the world. The technical term for that is theodicy, which is a defense of God's goodness and justice in the face of the existence of evil. It gives us a way to try explaining why there's suffering and evil in the world. The retribution principle does not offer a theodicy. The retribution principle is not an explanation of how God operates at all times in all places throughout the world. It is an affirmation in part of who God is, in that God delights in bringing good things to His faithful servants. And God takes seriously punishing wicked people, but He doesn't currently fully carry those things out. Because again, it's a fallen world and none of us could live through that. It tells us though about the identity of God, about the heart of God, and his identity and his character are bound to have ramifications in the world, ripple effects. And that's why sometimes it looks to us like the retribution principle is working out sometimes. Indeed, it is. But we shouldn't expect it to work out at all time in every circumstance. So we have theology. This is what God is like standing against theodicy. This explains life as we experiencing it. They contrast each other. And the book of Job is performing radical surgery to separate those two so that we don't make the mistake of thinking that theology leads to theodicy. Yahweh's justice must be taken on faith rather than worked out philosophically on a moment-by-moment analysis of our experiences. He does not need to be defended. In one sense, our attempts at theodicy are a bit of an insult to God. He doesn't need our defense, and we're not really in a good position to defend Him very well anyway. He doesn't need to be defended. He wants to be trusted. The entire constellation of God's attributes is at work in a complex, coordinated manner. We can never tell when God is going to choose justice or when He's going to choose mercy. We can never tell where His compassion might override something that we think He ought to be doing. Justice is part of that constellation, but it doesn't trump all the other attributes that God has. Maybe another example would help sort this out. In the New Testament, Jesus is confronted and challenged with a retribution principle question. In John 9, we find a story of a man who was born blind. The disciples see a great opportunity. Here's this man who was born blind, and the question they pose to Jesus is a retribution principle question. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see the great conundrum? Because how could it have been the man who sinned because he was born this way? And if it was his parents, how come the man suffers for it? And they were probably like really excited because now they're going to get the answer to the question of the ages because Jesus is standing right in front of him. And so they say, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
Now you can see that their question is a theodicy question. What explanation is going to account for this man's suffering? So when they ask a question of cause, it's a theodicy question. And it kind of moves towards an expanded theology, which is what Jesus eventually does. Now Jesus turns them away from the theodicy to the theology. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's intriguing that he says, neither this man nor his parents. And by that time, the disciples have stopped their excitement. And now they're going, oh man, he's doing it again, right? He's doing it again. He's not going to answer the question we asked. He's going to answer the question we should have asked. He says, it was neither this man nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now it's really an interesting question because what he does is he basically says, don't look to the past and ask the question about cause. You're not going to get an answer. Instead, what Jesus answers, Jesus doesn't give them a cause. He doesn't give them an explanation of the past, but he says, what you should do is turn your attention to the future and look for purpose. The glory of God is a purpose. It's not a cause. It's not a reason. And so Jesus turns their attention away from the past and away from cause to look at purpose. No explanation of the, of the suffering is, is going to come. You know, none is possible. We have to trust God's wisdom and seek out His purpose. So Jesus gives that same kind of answer. And it's the same kind of answer that Job ends up getting. Trust God's wisdom and seek out His purpose. Don't expect to get explanations of cause. It's not about reasons. It's about purpose. Now, Jesus is confronted again in Luke 13. Here, he's asked about this uh, tower that has collapsed on people while they're there for a festival. You know, how do you explain this sort of random-looking disaster? And again, Jesus turns their attention away from the cause. This has nothing to do with who was righteous and who was wicked. He he states that a one-to-one correspondence between sin and punishment should not be made. But rather, he encourages them to view the incident as a warning. He refuses to engage the question of cause and directs the attention of his audience to purpose. Such incidents give us warning. They encourage us to think in different terms, to think of how life can end so quickly, to think about how suffering can come. It's not about a one-to-one ratio of good and reward, sin and suffering. So we see that when Jesus addresses the retribution principle issues that he's confronted with, He consistently turns away from giving reasons or explanations for cause. And that's a large part of what the book of Job is trying to do, to adjust our expectations as we think about our own experiences in the world. So what does God do with the triangle? Where is God going to pitch his tent? Well, it's not on the triangle. God takes the triangle and he throws it away and he replaces it with his wisdom. He says it's not about figuring out all the answers, connecting all the dots so we can understand everything because we'll never be able to do that. It is about trusting that God does, that he knows everything and that he is working it all together for our good and his glory. Because we can manipulate the triangle. If we do good, it's like we can force God to reward us. We'll be righteous, so we will prosper. But God says, I don't reward because I have to, but because I want to. I love to pour out my blessings, but I do it in my own time through my own wisdom. And so we are left with the same question Job is faced with. Will we fear God for nothing? And by fear, I mean revere and submit to God. Not for anything we can get out of it, but simply because He is God and we are not. 
So today, as we go to the table, as we take the bread and we take the cup and remember what God has done for us through Jesus, let us search our hearts and think, where do we take our stand? Is it on the triangle or is it with God in His wisdom? Let's go to the table. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode next week.